millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. Somebody asked me just before the show if we should do a poll on whether or not it was time to rename Father's Day. Get out of here, I told them. Why would you rename it? Well, St. Paul's Girls' School has decided to abandon the title of head girl for the top of the school. There's no apparent explanation for why you would go on calling your school a girl's school, but you can't have a head girl. The authorities in the school said that that it was not sufficiently sensitive to the non-binary. Although 99% of the girls in the school defined themselves as girls. This walkery is everywhere. How could anyone object to Father's Day? Well, some, it seems, do. Maybe you are amongst them, in which case we'd be delighted to hear you. Now, This is, of course, the mother of all talk shows. It is, of course, the biggest show of its kind in the entire world with more than a million people watching, never mind listening, on the various platforms on which this show is going out. If you are in the Washington, D.C. area, you can listen in crystal clarity on FM 105.5 FM. If you're across the United States, you can listen on AM from Burning City to Burning City. And if you are around the world, you can listen on SputnikNews.com. If you're amongst the million that watch, you can watch on my Facebook, on RT's multiple Facebook pages, on my YouTube channel, or RT's multiple YouTube channels on Twitter, on Twitch, on Instagram. No, I think not Instagram this evening because my good wife can't be with me and no one is filming it for Instagram. But so many platforms on my Telegram channel, of course, is a growing one. Twitch is a growing one, but Twitter is the fastest growing portal for this show. However you're consuming it, it's a lot better than what you'll be watching on GB News. I'm the only person in this entire studio, and there's a lot of us, many of them volunteers, but a lot of us, and I'm the only person that thinks GB News will succeed, and that the teething troubles that have lasted longer than normal teething troubles will in the end be surmounted. But it will remain an enduring mystery why a channel uh, with scores of millions of pounds invested in it is so technically a dog's breakfast, especially by comparison to us who've got a laughable or cryable, if you're me, budget for the mother of all talk shows. This show 
has no technical hitches. Oh! <laughs> but seriously, I want to talk about GB News and the reason why I think it will be a success. Because there's a big audience out there that wants an end to wokery, wants an end to being endlessly proselytized at over whatever the latest liberal fad is. I think there are tens of millions of such people in Britain. Whether there were or weren't, wokery would still leave me cold, but I don't feel lonely in my detestation of the tendency of the so-called progressives, so-called liberals, so-called left, to lecture everyone around them in every possible way, to anathematize them. That's an important word. To place them beyond the pale, at the first whiff of an incorrect pronoun, at the first whiff of incorrect vocabulary, iconography, language. I think there are scores of millions of people in Britain and in the United States who are tired of all that. Now, ontology is important. Look it up. Ontology is important, but it's a science. It's not something you slap with a broad brush, which is precisely what happens here in this country. Let me give you a personal example. I woke up this morning to literally hundreds of tweets. Trending I have been for the last 24, maybe 48 hours. Calling me far right. Now, that will come as a surprise to anyone with an actual brain rather than someone programmed uh, by the literati commentariat, the woke brigades. How someone like me, born in a slum, brought up in a council house, going to work at the age of 17 in a factory, joining the Transport and General Workers Union and still being in it 50 years later, joining the Labour Party at 13, being called all kinds of left-wing names almost all of my life, being a disciple of Tony Benn, God rest his soul, for all of my life with him and weeping at his funeral. It will come as a surprise to some that hundreds of people now appear to think that I am far right, God knows what that means, for the rest of you. Now this nomenclature is false, uh, but it is the weapon of first resort of those who disagree with this political position or that. And if that's what they're calling me, what are they calling you? The so-called left, liberals I call them, in the so-called Labour Party and around about it, quite a lot of them have been expelled by the very people they're now supporting against me, they think that anyone one step to the right of them, they think to the right of them, is far right. And anyone two steps to the right of them is a fascist. I had the dubious privilege of sitting down and having tea uh, with the loathsome Owen Jones of The Guardian this week. It wasn't 
the most pleasant couple of hours, although even he had to concede that, hey, I'm quite popular, actually, in the place where he was interviewing me. And I said to him, you are part of Labour's problem. In fact, quite a big part, because you have led the way. You and people like you have led the way in the anathematization of the British working class because they don't think like you, talk like you, because they don't dress like you, because their social and cultural norms are not the same as you, you have blackguarded them, anathematized them, driven them beyond the pale, and they have concluded that people like you don't like them very much, and they are heartily reciprocating. And that is actually the Labour Party's fundamental problem in this country, and it's the Democratic Party's problem in the United States with scores of millions of Americans. You see, you're not far right if you don't like being lectured to by Hillary Clinton. You're not far right if you don't like the European Union and you don't like being governed from Brussels. You're not far right if you didn't like the hypocrite Barack Obama. That doesn't make you a part of a basket of deplorables. And the more you call people deplorables, far right, and all the isms and obes that are handed out, showered like confetti on everyone that disagrees with you, begin to dislike you more and more. Now, I have spent countless hours over the last few weeks on poor, windswept, neglected, left behind, taken for granted, housing estates, who never get a visit from the Owen Joneses that team throughout the Labour Party these days, and also the Democratic Party, I have no doubt. But I visit them, because coming from where I come from, and thinking the way I do, I can walk and talk amongst them very happily indeed. One of the, re I've been searching for the reasons for this onslaught today, calling me far right. Now I joke, I'm a straight white male. Maybe that's it. I'm married, maybe that's it. I've got six children, maybe that's it. I'm a Roman Catholic, maybe that's it. I don't have liberal views. I'm not a liberal, never have been a liberal. Maybe that's it. But I am economically the most radical person you're ever likely to meet. Trust me, I really mean it when I say I want a revolution in the way our economy and society is run. I have the most radical set of foreign policy views of anybody that you are ever likely to meet. And regular viewers and listeners already know many of them. But that means I'm far right for the liberal, politically correct police force which has grown up in this country. Now back to GB News. 
GB News is catering to the people who have equally been written off, called a basket of deplorables, called racists, even fascists, because we didn't like the European Union and campaigned to withdraw from it, because we think an issue about personal pronouns is utterly laughable. I see the Law Society of Britain just joined in today. They've produced a booklet to tell lawyers throughout the land how to be more careful about pronouns, just in case the odd person coming to sit in their lawyer's office is a man thinking that he's a woman or wanting you to think that he is a woman. The Law Society, are there no other issues for the Law Society to be occupying their time and resource on than this kind of balderdash? Apparently not. Now, as I say, there are many millions of people who are tired of the BBC ramming their liberal, woke, political, and social and cultural agenda down their throats. If I'm tired of that, what about the people on the estates that I've been tramping around endlessly over the last few weeks? Just think about that. You see, when you're in democratic politics, you can't live in an imagined country. You can't live in the future. You have to live now in the country you've got. Too many people on the so-called left take the view that Bertolt Brecht satirized when writing about East Germany, when he said the party had lost confidence in the people and had decided to elect a new one. You have to work and live. You have to ply your political trade amongst the people who are actually here. Not in Wokeland, or in Venezuela, or in Palestine, or in Cuba. You have to live with the British people. You have to persuade the American people of the correctness of the political direction that you are trying to set and ask people to follow you down. That's got that off my chest. You can tell uh, that I'm wounded by being called far right. The funny thing is, most of these memes were accompanied by a picture of me and Nigel Farage on the campaign trail for Brexit, for which more people voted than have ever voted for anybody or anything in the entire history of this country. They think that picture loses me votes. But actually, in the aforementioned estates, in which many tens of thousands of voters live, that picture is a vote winner. And so the last laugh might be on them. We'll know soon enough. Tonight, we're going to be talking about Northern Ireland and the crisis which is upon us with the resignation in record quick time. Be interesting to see if any party leader has ever lasted less than 21 days. 
Why is that important to the rest of the country and indeed the rest of the world? Well, it will be if Northern Ireland goes up in flames and if the peace process, the Good Friday Agreement, comes crashing down over the price of sausages and chilled meat in the supermarkets in Northern Ireland. We'll be talking about taking the knee. This is another casualty of the woke brigade. Everybody, apparently, who thinks the taking of the knee has gone on long enough and adulation of George Floyd and capital B, capital L, capital M is not a good idea, they too are denounced as far right. But if that's true, a significant proportion of Britain's football fans just fell into your basket of deplorables. And we'll be talking about Shamima Begin, who as a child, she was a child, ran away to Syria to join the ISIS. Now she's a captive and a mother and asking to come home. We'll be asking your point. There we are on the poll now. Should Shamima Begum be allowed back to the UK? A, yes. B, no. C, charged on arrival. That's for you to answer. I'll be talking to experts on all of these subjects over the next two and a half hours or so. T minus 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, one, zero, ignition, liftoff, liftoff, 30 minutes after the hour. We need to uh, acclimatise the public uh, for the introduction of extraterrestrials because, come to the conclusion at this point, if they're going to come, they are going to come soon. Back in the late 60s and early 70s, they actually saw the softer land in front of them or pass by in New York or go overhead. It went in front of my eyes up and turned into a, what looked like a star way up in the sky. They said the same line that you just made, and it was amazing. It is an awful waste of space. If, if we are all if that there is. If we are all that there is. Exactly. Have you ever seen any of these phenomena? I have seen um, energy entities. One looked like a massive jellyfish. The other one looked like a massive centipede. Well, you had me up to that point. Now I just think you're stark raving mad. How about this one from Mal Lindley? Hi, George. Hope you're well. I'm watching your show again from Perth. Western Australia, live on YouTube. I wake up every Monday morning at 2 a.m. Perth time to watch your show. Keep up the great work, and I wish you well in your upcoming tasks. Thank you very much, Mal, and to all our friends uh, down under, uh, a big hello. Tony says, last Monday, Labour joined the Conservatives in voting to postpone the end of COVID restrictions and so-called Freedom Day. Last Thursday, both parties collapsed in Chesham and Amersham. What do you think? I can't separate the two outcomes. All the best, Tony. I think you're right. I think the Tories paid a price uh, for reneging on their promise to the British people to lift the restrictions when they uh, promised that they would. 
I think they also paid a price for HS2. I think they also paid a price uh, for uh, the way that they have been handling the pandemic, the vaccination program notwithstanding. There's a limit to how much of a vaccine bounce you can have uh, when people begin to calibrate their losses. Uh, but the best part of the Amersham and Chesham by-election for me was that Labour got 622 votes. Last time, they got 7,000 votes under Jeremy Corbyn. And the time before that, again under Jeremy Corbyn, they got 11,000 votes. From 11,000 to 622 shows how far Labour under Keir Starmer has fallen. Now, uh, the second poll is up there. Is it time to stop taking the knee? A, yes. B, no. You can vote on my Twitter feed at George Galloway. Now, my good friend and colleague, Rachel Blevins, works with me on RT America. I work every night on RT America at uh, 7 o'clock UK time. It's always worth watching, and it's especially worth watching when Rachel Blevins is on with me. Rachel, welcome uh, back to the show. Always great to talk with you. Um, what's rattling in the American media world this week? It's great to be back on with you, George. You know, it has been a crazy week after watching President Biden go on sort of his tour of diplomatic talks over the last week. And so I think now we're kind of watching him cool off from that. And we are watching essentially that he survived that. I mean, he got through all of the talks. He got through his meeting with President Putin. And I think earlier this week, you really said it best when you pointed out that it will be a win for Biden, essentially, if his pants don't fall off at these meetings and specifically at that summit with Putin. And so I think that's exactly what we saw in the media coverage of it was that they are going to take exactly what he said. They're going to focus on the parts of him saying that he is really going to be tough against Russia, against China. And that's what they're going to place as him sort of being this presidential president now that he is in office. And I think that that's the treatment that we are going to continue to see when it comes to him. And so as far as the media is concerned, it was a great week in U.S. politics, especially when it comes to foreign policy. And presumably they never play the videos of him starting to wander off into the waves mm -hmm. or fall off the end of the pier. Uh, they don't show his wife having to catch him like a like a toddler and turn him round and point him in the right direction. All of that is airbrushed out, is it, in the land of the free? That it truly is. You know, we talk a lot about freedom of the press, but there wasn't a lot of coverage of the fact that when you looked at Russian President Putin's press conference, he had journalists from all around. He had Russian journalists, American journalists. He took questions from CNN and from top mainstream media outlets that he's probably answered a dozen times before, but he sat there, he took their questions, he was patient with them, even when they asked him questions about things that we have yet to see proof of, you know, when it comes to these claims of cyber attacks 
or his political opponents or things of that sort. But when it came to Biden, he was not allowed to be asked questions by any Russian journalist or really anyone who was actually going to challenge him. So it's interesting how not only do they airbrush out things that would make him look less strong and less powerful, but they actually make sure that he has his softball questions lined up for when he does do any sort of a of a live press conference where he's talking to the public. Yeah, all in the name of freedom and uh, liberty, of course. Yeah. One of the most hilarious was the passage in which he invited the public uh, to imagine what it would be like if America went around the world interfering in other people's elections, in other people's business. I mean, you're too young to remember the Rowan and Martin laugh-in but that was kind of like what it was, a man stating the most perfectly absurd nonsense as if it were uh, the Sermon on the Mount. Exactly. And, you know, it's crazy because it almost makes you wonder if he wholeheartedly believed what he was saying, because, I mean, we've gotten the Joe Biden who said that he's been around for 150 years. We've gotten the Joe Biden who it seems like he's got a different personality every single day that he's up there. So if he's up there saying, imagine that the rest of the world would accuse the U.S. of interfering in democracies. I mean, maybe the Joe Biden of that day actually did believe that. But I mean, it's a wake up call to anyone else who's watching and going, wait a second, aren't you talking about what the United States has a very long and well-established track record of doing and is still trying to do all around the world? They're just doing it a little bit more covertly now. Now, one of the things you said last week has been intriguing me, uh, that the media is beginning to turn a little sour for the vice president, uh, Kamala Harris. They've been beginning to criticize her, even attack her. Uh, what's the meaning of that, do you think? You know, that's a good question. And I was almost just as surprised by looking at this coverage because now we're seeing her referred to as the problem with the Democratic Party and exactly what's wrong with the Biden administration. And I feel like that could go a number of ways. I mean, in a sense, it could keep her from being able to run whenever Biden's term is over. If Biden finishes out his term and they decide that, you know, he's still just able enough to get through another four years, then they could be teeing him up to go on to then run again and just hope that the Republicans aren't going to put up anyone who is really going to challenge him. But at the same time, it also gives them someone to blame in all of this. You know, when they take someone like Kamala Harris and they assign her the problems at the U.S. border, they say, OK, you deal with immigration. Well, the reality is that there is no simple, perfect answer when it comes to U.S. immigration. I mean, we've seen that from politicians of both sides. No one seems to be able to exactly figure it out. So when they just throw it at her, someone who has no experience with this, it looks like they are setting her up to fail. And I think that at the end of the day, I mean, it's going to be interesting to see exactly why they're doing that. But when it comes to their motives, you would think that they would want the entire Biden administration to look like they are perfectly cohesive. And so I think that if they really are trying to put so much negativity on her, then there has to be a reason for it at the end of the day. And what about in the in the right wing media, Rachel, what the I mean, Fox News, if Fox News is the antithesis of MSNBC or CNN, uh, what's their output like nowadays? Are they giving Biden an easy ride 
Uh, are they hankering after uh, a change of power? Or have they buckled down to live with the people who are in power now? Well, I think the tricky thing that Fox News is going through is a lot of what the Republican Party is going through is that they see the anger and the frustration with the majority of the people in the Republican Party, the majority of the people who supported Trump. And so I think they're kind of in that place of still trying to figure out their way. But one of the things we have to remember when it comes to mainstream media here in the U.S., whether it's Fox News or it's CNN, the one thing they have in common is that they don't really challenge the United States government because they don't want to lose their access. They don't want to make it look like they are unpatriotic and un-American. So whenever they're watching Democrats and Republicans come to together to pass, you know, $700 billion in defense funding, they're right there cheering them along with it. They're not asking about why the United States is still complicit in bombing in Yemen. They're not asking why the U.S. still has troops all across the Middle East when they are there illegally. And I think that's the biggest thing is that we live in this world where we think that Fox News and CNN are on opposite ends of the spectrum because one of them may be more more uh, critical of Trump or they may be more critical of Biden. But at the same time, just like the Democrats and Republicans in Congress, they still have so much in common. And yet they trick people into thinking that they are two sides of the spectrum, so to speak. Finally, and I'm, I, I, I'll, I'll ask you this every week because we miss the comedy value, if nothing else. What's Donald Trump been doing this week? You know, that's a great question. I really wish I knew the answer to that. It's so funny how they managed to literally wipe him off of Facebook, off of Twitter, off of every kind of social media. He promised that he was going to have some sort of platform. And it's like he is losing his shot here because all of he has people across the country who want to hear from him. And his interviews really just are not getting that much traction. And so I think if anything, you know, that question of what Donald Trump is doing remains, but it also serves as a reminder that this year, the mainstream media and all of the top social media companies learned something very important, which is that they can take a figure who is so polarizing and who commands so much of U.S. politics, and they can pretty much just silence him and make it as if he doesn't even exist anymore. And that is a very powerful lesson that they are certainly keeping in mind, especially as we move forward and especially as more politicians actually do maybe possibly try to challenge the U.S. status quo. It is perplexing, surprising, odd uh, that having marched 70 plus million people to the top of the hill, uh, he appears to have marched them down again. He could easily have found investors uh, to set up an alternative to Twitter, an alternative to Facebook. Could have started his own television station, his own cable network news. Uh, it's the cost of entry into these things is no longer prohibitive, at least for the kind of people that he runs around with. Why do you think he's not done that? You know, I, I wonder about that, too, honestly, because we are in the perfect time for something like that to happen. We're at a time when 
Facebook and Twitter are censoring like never before. We're at a time when they are blocking people from both the left and the right. I mean, this is something that is felt all around. I know I've dealt with this. I know you've dealt with this. And a number of people who work in independent media have found themselves being censored in one way or another, who have found their reach being limited. And so now would be the perfect time for Trump to come out with something like this. And so it almost makes you wonder who is in his ear right now? What is his team telling him? And why are they telling him that now isn't the time to get out there? Or are they putting some sort of date forward? Because I know we heard with Facebook this week that they were saying that Trump's ban was going to last for the next two years. So it could be one of those cases where he's looking at all of the funding that's needed and then deciding, okay, we'll wait, you know, for the next two years. But at the same time, with as quickly as Facebook is going downhill right now, it makes really makes you wonder whether or not they're going to be around in two years and whether or not that is going to be a viable social social media site rather for Trump to actually join back on. So I think I, I would like to know who he's talking to and what his advisors are saying. Fascinating. Thank you, Rachel, as always. See you next Thank week, you. God willing. Thanks for uh, joining us. You know, and it's a very, thank you for, you know, I, I'm a big fan of your show, Gigi. Great, great debate, great. And I'm Scottish. I'm very passionate about what's happening there, you know. I had a great mom. She was Scottish, Mary McLeod. She taught me well. She taught me well at everything, including golf. I love Scotland and I love the Scottish food. It's great food. I said to Melania, you know, haggis. Look at that. What's more than more Scottish than that? Me. I am that haggis. She said, what, thin skinned and full of crap? Now, it's evident, has been ever since the supporters came back into the stadium, that there is not an unalloyed patience for the practice of taking the knee uh, before the beginning of every football match. It was embarrassing at the beginning when some fans began to boo it, but now uh, they're having to take extraordinary measures to try and drown out the booing, including cheering from those who support the practice. So it's turning out to be divisive amongst football fans in the stadium, certainly divisive in the community as a whole. The practice started, honestly, enough. It was uh, a decent, honest response, a spontaneous one, uh, to the brutal murder of a black man by a white police officer in Minneapolis. We watched it in real time, almost. We saw it happening on video. That police officer has been convicted of murder and the practice of kneeling in solidarity, not with uh, George Floyd, the victim of that murder alone, but the perception that law enforcement in the United States and in Britain were disproportionately violent towards people of color in their custody and took a different approach to policing communities of color than they did to uh, policing other communities, had widespread support, had demonstrations uh, in its support, had politicians like Keir Starmer uh, very ostentatiously taking the knee. It spread far beyond football. <clears throat> but football now is its last redoubt. I said, uh, I think a month ago or more now, 
I think uh, while it may, it may have been a good turn, uh, it's gone on too long. And it would be better to end it in good order rather than in disarray. It would be better to find another way for footballers to show their disapproval of racism, which is a real thing in the game as well as in the society as a whole. Now, my next guest, Zubi, is a friend of the show. He's been on before. He's also appeared on some lesser programs on the BBC, on ITV, on Sky, on Fox, uh, uh, on uh, many of the big shows in the United States, the Joe Rogan Experience, the Adam Carolla Show, the Glenn Beck Podcast. He's a very interesting man, born in England, brought up in Saudi Arabia. He is a rapper, but he's a clean rapper. He knows about sport. He is a sportsman, although he once briefly identified as a woman so that he could win the Women's Weightlifting Championship, just to prove how absurd such an idea was. I'm glad to say we can welcome him back. Now, Zubi, thanks uh, very much for joining us. I hope my introduction uh, did your career justice. Um, what's your take on taking the knee? Yeah, it's an interesting question, George. I mean, this is something that actually originated specifically with Colin Kaepernick, the American football player, several years ago now as a protest to what he felt was racial injustice within the policing and justice system in the USA. So first of all, it's really fascinating just how far and how long this thing has gone on for. As you mentioned, it was sort of revitalized last summer with the George Floyd situation. My position on it from the very beginning has always been, I support people's right to do it, but the act itself, I've never thought is particularly helpful nor useful in my own opinion. As I said, this is something that's gone on for many years in terms of tangible results. I don't think much has happened. I think more people might be talking and there might be even more polarization and more division, so on and so forth. I don't really think these sort of gestures are particularly helpful. I'm a huge free speech advocate, so I'm not here saying people should not be allowed to do it if they want to, but I don't really think it's helpful. And I don't think it's very targeted either. I think if you're going to do some sort of protest, then it should be targeted. It should be very clear on what is being protested and what exactly is being done, what the request is, what the demand is, what people want to actually happen. Because otherwise the message can get confused, it can get muddied up. And also a lot of people are not going to even understand what it's about. So if people do start booing when people are kneeling, for example, there could be all sorts of reasons why people are booing, just like there could actually be quite a lot of different reasons why people are kneeling. And so in my own opinion, in my observation, I don't think it's particularly helpful. I do think it's probably well-intentioned by most people, but I think that there are better ways to tackle any form of injustice or bigotry in society. Well, it has become uh, rote, uh, and people have continued to do it because they were already doing it and didn't really quite know a way out of doing it. Uh, some will have done it insincerely, but most 
I think, uh, will have done it quite sincerely. Certainly the black footballers uh, who uh, know what it's like to grow up black in, uh, in a society where they are a minority, uh, where they are coming, people like uh, Raheem Sterling, for example, from very mean streets, from very poor backgrounds. Uh, I have no doubt that they did not grow up having a pleasant experience at the hands of authority, including uh, police authority. But it was in Kohe, in a sense, from the beginning also, because people did it before they knew uh, what kind of a person George Floyd was. Uh, that's not to say, of course, that his vicious murder uh, was not uh, reprehensible in, uh, in the extreme, uh, but that he was a figure not really worthy of being painted on walls as a mural and held up as uh, uh, an icon was not known at the time that this all began. And secondly, it was not known that, and here I mean in capital letters, BLM uh, would uh, later go uh, so wrong where its leaders end up buying large mansions uh, with the money of the movement, uh, where uh, its political agenda uh, is, well, not quite what people thought they were kneeling for in the beginning. Would you agree with me on that? Yeah, well, I think the whole movement is what became new to a lot of people last year. As, I mean, BLM, I think, began in, I want to say, 2015 or 2016. And so a lot of what has been revealed about them over the last few months that sort of hit the mainstream, um, a lot of that was known by people many years ago. I mean, I've been very familiar with BLM for at least five, five years now, and I, I'm not a supporter of it, and I don't advocate the, advocate, uh, the organization because... I know that what they stand for is far beyond the simple slogan, which is also their name. It's a great example of semantic overload. So, of course, every decent person agrees with the literal meaning of the statement, but then you have a whole organization, an actual entity, and then you've also got a movement which is attached to it. So really, when people even talk about BLM or Black Lives Matter, there's really three things there which are all getting conflated. And so someone can absolutely support the statement Black Lives Matter. Yes, of course, um, that's self-evident to any decent person in the world, just like everybody's life matters. Um, but in terms of the organization and its goals and its motives and its leadership, so on and so forth, what they're doing with all the money that's been donated to them and have been doing for many years, that's a whole nother situation. So somebody could support the statement BLM, and most, like I say, most people do, but there are tons of people who don't support the organization, including a lot of black people. And, you know, that has nothing to do with the statement itself. It's like if someone had an organization called uh, Don't Kick Puppies, but they actually had some sort of radical uh, extreme agenda, which also happened to include not kicking puppies, then it would be disingenuous for someone to say, oh, well, you know, I agree with the state. If someone said, I agree with the statement, but not the movement, then that would be very clear cut. But I think they chose the name very specifically. But I think what's going on now with the whole kneeling situation, as I mentioned earlier, I mean, I think this goes way beyond. I mean, George Floyd doesn't have anything to do with 
what's happening, say, in football. I mean, we're not even talking about the same region of the world here. Um, there's no reason, it doesn't make sense for what happened in Minneapolis to happen. And then next thing you know, across Europe, people are kneeling um, against police brutality, so on and so forth. So again, I think if people are going to protest something and actually try to fix something, then it needs to be, it needs to be clear cut and specific what it is that they are trying to fix. Otherwise, it's going to go on forever. I mean, at what point will people stop kneeling? Um, what do they want to happen? What's the request? What's the demand? I'm not sure. I'm not sure that they're sure. And I certainly don't think the majority of the people watching the game are sure either. What's the take of uh, black people in this country and in America in general? I know you can't speak for black people and wouldn't want to, but uh, you, you, of course, uh, move in circles that must have discussed this matter. Uh, is what you're saying in any way controversial uh, amongst black people, do you think? I don't particularly think so. No, there's a really wide range. There's a very diverse range of views and opinions from what I gather, even amongst myself and my friends, certain family members, etc. Um, you know, people have different levels of both knowledge of this particular organization and movement and, you know, gen different ideas about how significant or uh, severe racism is in 2021 in the UK, in the USA, etc. So there's a huge range of opinions on this subject. And I can certainly speak for myself and I could talk about my own experiences, but I, and you know, and I can talk about data and I can talk about statistics, but everyone's going to have different views on it, different feelings, different opinions. So I can only ever speak for myself. So uh, just finally, Zubi, what are you up to now? Uh, what are you working on? How can people uh, follow you, stay in touch? Sure thing. So um, I've got a new album, which is now available to pre-order from my website, teamzubi.com. The album is called Word of Zubi. It's going to be out wider in the next few months, but if someone wants to pre-order it right now, you can get it from my website. I've also got my book out right now, Strong Advice, Zuby's Guide to Fitness for Everybody, which is also available on my site, teamzuby.com. And if you want to follow me on social media, you can find me on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, all at Zuby Music, Z-U-B-Y Music. And you're permanently male now after your brief sojourn as a world champion <laughs> female weightlifter. <laughs> We'll see. The time might come where I need to make another point. So we'll see. Never say never. Zubi, thank you very much indeed for joining Thanks. us on the mother of all talk shows. Uh, we've got, I think, hundreds of responses to the uh, poll. Should Shamima Begum be allowed back to the UK? A, yes. B, no. C, charged on arrival. And I'll read some of those in the course of the show. Now, you may remember, he was an excellent guest actually, just a few weeks ago, uh, Professor Jonathan Tong, Professor of Politics at the University of Liverpool and co-author of the book, The Democratic Unionist Party, From Protest to Power on the DUP. Now, when he was last on, he was explaining the runners and riders for the leadership of the DUP. Uh, the uh, candidate that I thought would be the wisest pick for them, Jeffrey Donaldson, narrowly lost. The man who won, Edwin Put, 
It's not a great name for a political leader. And anyway, they didn't put up with him for very long. He's gone in 21 days. And Professor Tong's here to explain what on earth is happening and, Jonathan, what uh, it all means for the rest of us. Of course, we care what it means for Northern Ireland, but what does it mean for the rest of us? Thanks for joining us. Is it a record, Professor, 21 days in power? It's almost a record, and it is a record for Northern Irish politics. 504 hours in the job was all that Edwin Poots was given. Uh, as you indicated in your introduction, George, it was a, a mistake uh, for Edwin Poots to be elected leader of the DUP. The better choice would have been Sir Geoffrey Donaldson with more political acumen. And it may well be now, ironically, that the, the runner-up in a two-horse race, Geoffrey Donaldson, becomes leader of the DUP. In terms of where it went wrong for Edwin Poots, he, uh, when he got rid of Arlene Foster as DUP leader in what was a, a pretty brutal uh, political assassination, then you have to have a new first minister of Northern Ireland. So Edwin Poots had to nominate his friend, Paul Given, as new first minister of Northern Ireland uh, last week. But when you do that in Northern Ireland, a, a new deputy first minister has to be nominated at the same time. Sinn Féin has the right to nominate the Deputy First Minister, and Sinn Féin's price for supporting the DUP's choice of Paul Given was to demand implementation of Irish language provision, which was agreed 15 years ago, re-agreed uh, at the beginning of last year, and Sinn Féin said, look, this has to be now implemented, and the British government agreed that it would be implemented if Stormont wasn't going to do it by October of this year. The problem was that Poots did not sign that off with his party. He agreed this, his party said, oh, well, hang on a minute, we're, we're not having this. And by nine o'clock the same evening, Poots was gone um, as leader after a mere three weeks in charge. And now, obviously, the DUP is quickly to appoint a new leader. And what you've got in place in Northern Ireland is a first minister, Paul Given, who does not have the confidence of his own party. And they want him to resign as first minister as soon as a new party leader is sorted out. By any metric, that is a real dog's breakfast. Uh, let's uh, examine it more closely. Sir Geoffrey Donaldson, if he now becomes by default uh, the leader of the DUP, is of course a Westminster MP. I sat with him for many years, travelled many places in his company, know him quite well. Uh, he'll have to nominate one of his friends for First Minister. And it won't presumably be the one that Mr. Poot nominated. So who might that be? Correct. Paul Gibbon would not be Sir Geoffrey Donaldson's first choice as first minister. He wouldn't be his second choice and probably not his third choice either. Uh, the only thing he might consider is to try and reunite the DUP, which is tearing itself apart in not just a civil war, but civil wars. Uh, you could keep Paul Gibbon on just to try and reunite the party. But I think that's unlikely. And, you know, it's not a party that is awash with talent that you can impose uh, as first minister. So I think he'd be scratching his head. He'll be desperate to try and uh, come back from Westminster, go from Westminster to Stormont. And that means someone standing aside so that Geoffrey Donaldson can have a, a safe berth in Northern Ireland and then put himself in as first minister. But in the meantime, yeah, he has to find someone. And there's no name that jumps out. It was even rumoured at one point that Arlene Foster could be reinstated. But I think that's really unlikely. I suspect she's probably off to the House of Lords. 
but you wouldn't completely rule, rule it out now, given that this is, you know, a, it's almost pay-per-view stuff, this. It's, it's uh, such a falling apart of a party in, in such dramatic circumstances. Well, as Oscar Wilde said on the death scene in Little Nell, you'd have to have a heart of stone not to laugh. But I don't suppose it's a laughing matter over there. No, it's not, because it is a volatile time for Northern Ireland and Stormont is teetering on collapse. And you might think, well, when is it not a volatile time in Northern Ireland and when is Stormont not on the verge of collapse? Because it has been collapsed 40% of the time since powers were devolved after the Good Friday Agreement. Uh, powers were given in December 1999. It's chronically unstable, the power sharing uh, arrangement at Stormont. But, you know, these are dangerous times because loyalists you know, were rioting only in April, only a couple of months ago. There was serious disorder uh, in Belfast. They haven't got a political outlet at the moment because of the DUP meltdown. Um, the DUP, DUP also being blamed for the, the trade border uh, in the Irish Sea that has divided Great Britain and Northern Ireland in economic terms. So loyalist politics are, are very, very volatile. They're in a real state of flux and there's no clear political outlet uh, for those protests. That's what makes this situation dangerous in one sense. Uh, and the other is that the future of power sharing in Northern Ireland, you know, that's the centerpiece of the Good Friday Agreement. There is a section, I think, of, of the DUP that is thinking about walking away from power sharing. If there was to be an election tomorrow, and there has to be an assembly election by next May anyway, the DUP will lose the first ministership crown to Sinn Féin. And the question begged from that is, would the DUP come back into the institutions, the other side of an election, operating in reduced circumstances, would they accept uh, a nomination for deputy first ministership? Because remember, the DUP only went into power sharing really with Sinn Féin when Ian Paisley could be first minister. If the DUP can't have that prize, they might walk away. And if you don't have the largest parties from both sides in the institutions, those institutions are potentially about to topple over. Now, sometimes it's wise to say, well, so what? So tell us, so what? Uh, if the power-sharing executive were to collapse, direct rule from Westminster uh, would, would have to take its place. What's wrong with that? You can argue that there's nothing wrong with that. It's, it would be more satisfactory, given you've had direct rule by default in recent years, because, because of the lack of agreement between the parties on issues like abortion and same-sex marriage, the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland has legislated directly. There has, Westminster has passed legislation that legalised abortion uh, and legalised same-sex marriage. Brandon Lewis, the current Secretary of State, said uh, only this week that he would legislate to introduce Irish language provision. Uh, you also had the protocol. The Assembly doesn't really have much of a say. It has a vote in 2024 on whether to overturn the, the protocol, that border between Great Britain and Northern Ireland, but it had no say in its implementation. So you might argue you've got direct rule by default uh, anyway. The argument against that, well, it's twofold. One is, obviously, if you're a nationalist uh, wanting a united Ireland, why would you want direct rule from Westminster? It's anathema to you. The second argument is the public opinion argument that if you look, successive surveys of the population of Northern Ireland have suggested, do suggest very strongly, that they do want devolved power sharing to carry on, albeit on their community's terms. You know, there aren't many takers for direct rule. It never exceeds more than 20% when you do these public opinion surveys in Northern Ireland. It's, it's not a big preference. And, you know, direct rule, who, who would really thinks that direct rule 
in the 70s, 80s and 90s in Northern Ireland was highly successful. It, it wasn't. You had three decades of trouble. So of the trouble. So, you know, for all devolved power sharing's faults, you can argue it's the least bad option. Now, the proximate cause was the Irish Language Act issue, but that can't really be the underlying point because, as you say, this was agreed and then agreed again uh, and agreed just earlier this year. Uh, so what's it really all about, Professor? I mean, I wouldn't underestimate the extent to which Irish language provision does polarise the electorate. Uh, less than 10% of unionists say that they want uh, Irish language provision, whereas more than 90% of nationalists say they do want it. But I would agree with you, there are bigger issues. At the heart of this, relations between the DUP and Sinn Féin are toxic. They always are. Sinn Féin argue that the DUP is trying to deny basic rights, whether it be everything from same-sex marriage through to, uh, through to Irish language. The DUP, and some to the right of the DUP, the traditional unionist voice, which only has one seat in the Assembly, but is to the right of the DUP, they would argue, look, Sinn Féin, ultimately, they're all about creating instability in Northern Ireland, because ultimately, and it's no secret to anyone, they want a united Ireland, and therefore, they're quite happy to see Stormont ultimately uh, be dysfunctional, because it's about unity. I mean, both of those arguments, it depends on your, on your political perspective as to how much you buy into them. I mean, what we do know is obviously the constitutional question was re-arisen uh, by Brexit. I don't think it ever really went away, though. Um, and at some point, at some time unspecified, there is likely to be a border poll, a constitutional referendum as to whether Northern Ireland should reunite with the Republic, whether there should be a, a united island. We don't know when that'll be. It's up to the Secretary of State. Only he can decide when a referendum takes place based upon... It, the, the criteria, according to the Good Friday Agreement, is when he thinks that, that it's possible, or likely, I should say, that there will be a majority vote in favour of a united Ireland within Northern Ireland. I don't think we're there yet, although there are some signs that support for a united Ireland is on the up, is on the increase within Northern Ireland. But it's in the Secretary of State's gift, and the criteria are not crystal clear as to when he should call that referendum. Now, in the latest opinion polls out of Dublin, uh, Sinn Féin are now miles ahead of the other parties and you just said that it's quite likely that if the Northern uh, Irish Assembly elections go ahead uh, in what, nine months from now or so, uh, that Sinn Féin will also win those. Looked at from, you know, the man from the moon, uh, that would seem to indicate ineluctable progress towards reunification. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you 
you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science, with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Yeah, I, th- I think that's right. I mean, if Sinn Féin become the largest party in the South uh, and dominate the, the government down there, they probably have to work in coalition uh, uh, as part of that government. And if Sinn Féin is the largest party in the North, and Sinn Féin's providing the first ministry in the North, then, first of all, that's a, a big psychological and political defeat for unionism in the North. And secondly, it does increase, as you suggest, the pressure for that border poll, because Sinn Féin has demonstrated its popularity and Sinn Féin's project, we all know what Sinn Féin's ultimate project is, it is uh, Irish unification. Now, how long the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland can resist that pressure, I think, is open to question in that scenario. I certainly think that Sinn Féin will become the largest party uh, in Northern Ireland. I think the, the, the beauty for nationalists is that they could afford to lose a first border poll um, as long as it's close, because under the terms of the Friday Agreement, it's not like the Scottish situation where people, you know, there's arguments as to when, if ever, a second referendum should be held. The criteria is clearer for Northern Ireland. A, a sec- another referendum can be held. It doesn't have to be, but it can be held every seven years thereafter. So potentially you could lose the first, but eventually get unification over the line. As I say, I still think there's some way to travel. You're not getting unionists waking up every in the morning and thinking, you know what, I'm an Irish nationalist now. That isn't happening. But there are unionists who, who or people who would have been unionists once upon a time, who are becoming constitutional agnostics, at least. They're moving into the centre and they would contemplate or accept a United Ireland in a way that would have been impossible only half a generation ago. That's where the change is happening. And also in terms of the demographics, they're against unionism. The nationalist population is rising. There's also been that growth uh, in the centre ground. So the unionist parties are fishing in an ever shrinking electoral reservoir. It's going to need a very, very strong and adept DUP leader or a, a leader of unionism more broadly to actually turn that round. What are the Republicans, the nationalists, Sinn Féin, what are they doing to, uh, as it were, persuade uh, people who are in the unionist community? Um, I mean, they talked about this project for a new Ireland and so on. I'm not close enough to it to know uh, if that's had any effect. But, I mean, if I was running the campaign for reunification in Ireland... I think I'd be trying harder to assuage the concerns of the unionist community who are still, at minimum, many hundreds of thousands of people uh, who have rights and who have traditions, some of which we'll see 
uh, marching on the streets this month, next month. Absolutely. There hasn't been enough discussion as to what a united Ireland would look like. And if you're going to have a constitutional referendum, then I think you know the public, whether you be unionist, nationalist or neither, they're entitled to know what the structures of Irish unity uh, would consist of. There's a difficult debate here within unionism as to what to do about this. Some unionists, including the former DUP leader, Peter Robinson, have suggested that unionists should engage in constitutional conversations with nationalists to discuss what a united Ireland would look like. Robinson thinking that, that unionists can still win a border poll, but sh they should engage in, in those discussions. Other unionist leaders have been very reluctant. In fact, they've refused to do so because they argue, look, it's discussing the surrender terms um, uh, as far as we're concerned. Why should we discuss the dissolution of our own country? So there's an ongoing debate within unionism. Nationalists do want unionists to engage in these discussions. Um, because you need to know, for example, whether there would be devolution for the North under unification, where, in which Stormont would remain uh, and allow unionist expression of their, uh, their British identity within, within United Ireland. I don't think there's any point in pretending as well that United Ireland would feel anything other than a defeat for unionists, because by definition, the union is severed. You can't avoid that. So I think what's been interesting as well this week is that Leo Varadkar, who's never really pushed the Irish unity agenda as, as leader of, of Fine Gael, he was talking about his desire for Irish unity this week and hopes that it's a project that will be completed in his lifetime. Mio Martin, the current Taoiseach, he has uh, created a shared island unit, which has sort of very gently discussed the, uh, the idea of Irish unity, but hasn't really uh, advanced discussion of it. And then, of course, the Sinn Féin, which is pushing for a border poll and it always pushes for Irish unity. Unionists are often reluctant to engage with Sinn Féin because of Sinn Féin's past. Um, so it's, yeah. It's a, to some extent, it's a pan-nationalist project now to try and get Irish unification, but it's one that unionists are reluctant, many unionists are reluctant to engage with. They'd rather the whole idea would just go away. It's not going to go away, of course. Professor, thank you very much for your peerless analysis. Thanks again for uh, joining us. Tom says, after independence, we could choose the government we want. Tom, could you not have called me and argued that nonsense? Couldn't you? What's wrong with you, man? You've had the vaccine. Go ahead. I went, when I came out, I went into a boxer's stance and started doing a jig. And an old fellow said, hey, have you just had that vaccine? I said, aye. And he said to his wife, come on, love, you better get me one of them. He said, uh, make uh, me uh. dance. So you're full <laughs> of life. And Ben says, could Scotland actually do better autonomously? Like I want California to secede. But I think we'd thrive if not burdened by the rest of the US. How very revealing of you, Ben. How utterly revealing of you. And Philip says, how any Labour or Tory supporter has the nerve to say the SNP are corrupt is beyond me. Why do you people not have the guts to call up instead of cowering behind one single name on social media? There's a lot of people in Bradford who won't be taking this uh, uh, antivirus due to religious grounds. Simon, what do you mean by religious grounds? Religious grounds, I mean, many Muslims, for example, have issues with regards to this uh, uh, vaccine, certain well, tell things. Me, tell me what issues? What issues? Well, for example, pork. What does pork have to do with this vaccine? 
you're you're um, you're you're kind of again you're you're clouding the issue here. There's the religious. I'm not clouding uh, the issue. You said you pork. Issue. You, you said issue. pork. No, but Simon, other things which Simon, are, probably... are you are you yourself a Muslim? It doesn't matter whether it I am does, or not. That's because you the are is, purporting. Is, no, it does. It's justified it does. for people to ask that. Be it's quiet for a moment, for... please. No, I won't. It's just well, you will, because I'll turn your volume down. This is dangerous, reckless, ignorant, and potentially fatal nonsense. Get out of my sight and don't come back. 02077. 982255 is the number if you're in the UK or if you're in the US 0017577444480 or tweet me of course Now uh, should Shamima Begum be allowed back into the UK A yes 17% B no 69%. C, charged on arrival, 14%. 1,369 of you have voted so far. You can vote for the next hour or so. The Telegram poll, as opposed to the Twitter poll, the aforementioned one, is quite different. It's similar, but not entirely. 27% of the Telegram poll say yes, she should be allowed back into the UK. 44% say no, she should not. That's a considerable difference. And 20% say she should be charged on arrival. You got a point of view on any of these things? Uh, call me, the United Kingdom, 0808196552. 0808196552. It's absolutely free. If you're in the United States, it's also absolutely free. Plus one, eight four four nine four four double three double four. Or you can tweet us, of course, as many, many of you have been doing. Uh, DF and V asks, will you continue to present if you become a member of Parliament? Well, yes, of course, Parliament doesn't sit on Sunday nights. So you're not getting rid of me that easily. And Mick Commons says, Britain needs to trail her homegrown terrorists to get to the bottom of what happened, not remove citizenship and leave them uh, in Iraqi Kurdistan. And Joanne Nyeri said, taking a knee is a sign of respect. I haven't gotten any problem with it and rather like it. And Alexandros says, I won't take the knee for anyone. And Nom de Plume says, I've got a real problem with taking the knee. I've only got one leg. And K.A. says, it seems like we're talking about stupid non-issues. Who cares about what a school renamed their head person? I do, actually. K.A., why don't you call me? I'd like to hear your argument on that. And Nina on Twitter said, there are no ifs or buts. Shamima Begum should not be allowed back in the UK. Anyone who thinks she is so innocent is incorrect. She knew what she was up to when she left. And believe me, these girls know what they are doing because that's what they got taught in their religion, which is, of course, utter nonsense. Also on Twitter, Marek said, with all these woke liberal barristers, 
if she's allowed back and even if she loses her case, we'd never be able to get rid of her. We'd be branded racists if we tried. And Gerard White says Shamima Begum did something very stupid, aged 15. I joined the French Foreign Legion, aged 23. That was a bit stupid, but I didn't have my citizenship stripped from me. Good point, Gerard. And Grumbleweed said, if Begum is never allowed to return, she may inadvertently act as a deterrent to make others think twice about joining ISIS. If we go soft and let her return, it might encourage others to join ISIS. Uh, it's not only about Begum. And Mandy Burroughs says, can't say anything without offending snowflakes. So sick of these woke people telling us what we should be doing and saying. And David says, sadly, Mr. Galloway has become as desperate and divisive as the Tories. He has become a reactionary and right wing. I'm out. Thanks for watching, David. And Jack Klugman says, college TV courses have better production values than Grifter Britian, GB News. And Alexander Chan says, Owen Jones is indeed a big part of the problem of why Labour cannot win a single election. Now, Andrew Drury is a journalist and filmmaker of note and often goes to uh, quite difficult places to make his films. And I take my hat off to him. He previously travelled to the front lines of the war in Somalia. He infiltrated the Ku Klux Klan and he's been exposed to radiation at a former nuclear test site, which has been featured in the Netflix documentary, Dark Tourist. He's just done a new feature-length documentary called Danger Zone, and amongst the other uh, good things in it is an interview with the former ISIS bride, Shamima Begum. Andrew, thank you very much indeed for uh, joining us. Uh, tell us first uh, about the film as a whole. What's your take uh, on events in, in that film? Um, the film's... Um, oh, hi, actually. <laughs> How are you? Good. Uh, nice about, to see you. Um, the film's about several things. Mainly it's about um, my travels to places like Iran, Iraq, Afghanistan, Pakistan during the war um, period and looking at the effects after the war. Um, some during... I mean, I've come under attack in Kirkuk. I was shot at by ISIS. So it's a general picture of the effects of war. Well, that's always, of course, uh, worth doing and certainly worth seeing as this one will be. How did you end up talking to Shamima Begum? Oh, that's a million dollar question now. Um, we were filming in, in Raqqa, so we planned as part of this... Um, oh, we, we filmed as part of this um, production um, we were going to um, look at the wrecks and ruins of, um, of Raqqa and people that are living um, back in Raqqa from the refugee camps who return back to their old buildings. Um, so during that period of time, I had a day break um, and I just give it a punt to see if I could go and see Shamima. We wasn't far from her. Um, we had our applications processed at the Arrows camp and then Shamina agreed, or well, she had no choice, but agreed to have sort of 30 seconds with me. Um, she has a choice whether to take part in an interview. Uh, and thankfully, after convincing her, she did. 
And when you say you ask permission, who did you ask? Oh, presumably not the uh, government of Syria. No, well, it's funny because all these top-line journalists have been going through our solicitors. So we have good fixers who know people within the camp. So um, contacted them. We sent a written application and um, see if we could visit the camp. Um, not necessary to see Shamima. It was British-speaking um, um, detainees inside the camp, which, um, which we did. So what happens is you get British-speaking um, prisoners put into rooms beside the meeting room. Then you go into each room and choose which one you want to speak to. And I had option of two, um, Shamima and Khalifa Kelly's um, wife. And I spoke to both. And... What was she like, Shamima Begum? When I first went there, I mean, I've seen all these uh, comments on Twitter, let her rot, let her rot. And do you know what? My first opinion when I was here, I, I jumped on the bandwagon, let her rock. And when I first saw her, I saw this kind of timid, waif, um, scared person who totally refused. She said, I'm not going to talk to you. I really had enough of journalists. I said, oh, well, I'm not really a journalist. I'm a filmmaker. We're making a film. And we want to speak about you, not about you at the site of seeing heads in a bin or whether you took part in active activities. It was to find about you. So she's just really timid, really scared, shaky, frightened, tearful. And physically, I mean, is she, is she, she thin? Does she appear to be eating? Is she healthy? Um, no, she's, but she looks really healthy, and she, but she is extremely thin. Um, and, I, you know, I asked her during the interview, why are you so thin? She sells... Her food, she gets food parcels and she sells them for clothes. Well, I mean, she looked quite trendy there, not at all like the, uh, the person that we saw uh, in the ISIS heartland uh, when they were in control. Is that deliberate to pull on the heartstrings of uh, the people here in Britain? Do you know what? That's exactly what I thought when I first went there. But after speaking to her, she says that she's always dressed, in, dressed Western. Um, she just really dresses up for the uh, media. So it's the other way around, it's reverse. She says she dresses Western because it makes her feel good. And anything in that camp that makes you feel good um, is okay by her. Little things that make her, she, obviously she's struggled with um, wanting to commit suicide. Um, she's down, she's not liked by any of the other people inside the camp. So these little things make her feel good, she continues and does. And what does she live in, one of those tents that we saw? Yeah, she does. She pointed out a tent, but she wouldn't let us in it. I don't know if it's because she's a normal 21-year-old who's a little bit untidy, but we, we, we did go in other people's tents, very tidy, they've got air conditioning in them, uh, and they look quite comfortable. And did she ask you to make a plea for her to be allowed back, or has she given that up? She says, I mean, on my questions to her, I said, look, not everybody hates you in the UK. Um, so she goes, yes, they do. Everybody hates me. I'm hates me. I'm not going to ever get my citizenship. And that's where she come back. Pretty please, pretty please let me back. But it wasn't a plea. She never, she just doesn't believe she's coming back. Uh, but presumably she could go to Bangladesh or have they refused to accept her? I, um, part of the interview, when I was walking and we were casually talking, I brought up Bangladesh and I asked her, you know, she said there was no way that she could ever go to Bangladesh because she would be executed or killed as soon as she entered Bangladesh because under their legal system she'd be, she would be, well, be executed, she believes. Now, just for those that uh, haven't followed this story, and a lot of international viewers and listeners, of course, uh, she ran away as a child, aged 15, 
to uh, join the ISIS. She became a bride, a child bride to one of the ISIS terrorists. And she, uh, I think he was killed. Uh, she was captured and the British have removed her citizenship and said that she is a Bangladeshi, although she's never been a Bangladeshi. And that's because Britain doesn't want her back here, uh, doesn't want to try her uh, for crimes that she may or may not have been involved in, uh, doesn't want her here because, as you see from our poll, it's enormously unpopular, uh, the idea of her coming back here. Did you have a take on that? You said in the beginning you were of the let her rot uh, school of uh, thought. Have you changed your mind on that, Andrew? I certainly have. No, her husband is still alive. He's in a jail somewhere. Oh, um, he's still alive. Okay, I beg your yeah, pardon. Yeah, I questioned on him as well, and um, I asked if she still loves him. She says she hates him. I believe after spending a lot of time with her, I mean, mine was more not into, but more of a role. I mean, we, we went out and we talked and after spending a bit of time, she didn't try and fool me. And I think that she was quite a simplistic girl. My, my point of view is when she was 15, I mean, I've seen in the paper and the press today that she was wearing ISIS badges to school. Somebody's failed her. She was definitely radicalised. I asked her when she was a young girl, what she was like with a young girl. She was a normal young girl, and I asked about TV show. That's where we got the friends. These questions were just to try and personalise her, to make her not just a figure. So she enjoyed Friends, she enjoyed Kanye West, she enjoyed normal things. So something stopped her and changed her thought process at some stage. I have my ideas, and I know pretty much in my mind who radicalised her, but she most definitely was. Um, in any case, she was a minor when she went out. I think the school system failed her because they must have seen a change in this girl. They must have done. If she's walking around schools with ISIS badges, how come no one picked her up on that? That surprises me. I don't think she's manipulative. I think she's very childlike. I think she understands she's made a, a big mistake. She told me as soon as she got into um, or, or was in some area, she didn't um, say what it was under ISIS she wanted to leave immediately she realized it wasn't this paradise situation both her and her husband tried to escape she said but her husband was imprisoned I think um, she is guilty she's a guilty of treason to the country I believe we have to trial her my opinions change for twofold I think she's child childlike and we can't leave in the camp because she was a British citizen my second is is people don't understand our Roge will close. That camp cannot remain as it is. She will and could be just set free like other um, ISIS brides inside Iraq. I visited another camp there where they've all been dispersed. What happens if we lose control of her? So most people on Twitter have been sending these remarks to me saying, "Ah, oh, you're an ISIS supervisor. I'm not. I'm patriotic to my country. And I believe we're better having control of her, knowing where she is, because we have to be careful what we wish for. So anybody out there is going, oh, let her rock. Let her in prison, the British taxpayers' money. How do we know that with British taxpayers not already paying for it anyway out there? So I believe for her own security of her country, she should come back, face trial, because basically she's had trial by media anyway. Um, it's all superstition, everything. Some people say that she joined the police out there. These are questions we ask. I can't see her. I think she was a baby-making cleaner of what I've spoken to her about. Um, what about, uh, lastly, because we're running out of time, you said you saw 
another prisoner there. Uh, 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 Who is that other prisoner, Um, Kelly? Terence Kelly, the Irish um, terrorist who who committed suicide, blew up a truck um, bomb um, going towards Iraqi forces. Now that girl, right, is a lying, conniving, um, nasty piece of work. Um, She asked me if I could come back and find out she still had a British citizenship. She showed no remorse for anything she'd done. As far as I'm concerned, although I I do believe she should come back, I don't think that woman should ever be released. She's got no remorse for anything. And and she would say had the same um, spill as Shamima. She was trying to play the innocent. But I, I could look through her eyes and I could see something that I didn't like. Now, she is what everybody believes Shamima is. But you say Shamima was markedly different to her. Yeah, she, Shamima was, was, was very timid. And I know everybody will say she played me, but I, it, may, it's, it's, it doesn't matter whether people think she's played me. My still feelings are she has to come back and face trial. And people say, oh, if you bring her back, everybody's got to come back. Well, let me tell you, there's more people come back that we don't know that are far more dangerous than Shamina that are already in the country. Yeah, well, I mean, there are people who have come back that we don't know. Uh, And, of course, uh, there are people who never went uh, who turned out to be uh, extremely dangerous uh, indeed. You can understand the point of view of the of the average British citizenship uh, citizen, rather, uh, that we've already got uh, enough fanatic extremists of all kinds uh, in our country. Why, Why volunteer to bring another one back? But why equally do we want to burden her on Syria? Why, why should we have something that we've produced here, if she has been radicalised or non-radicalised, why should we burden her on Syria? What gives us the right to dump her in Syria? Okay, thanks, uh, Andrew. When can well, we see the film? Um, you can see the film very shortly. It's in cinemas, and it's not about Shamina. One other thing, George, there's, on Wednesday, I'm releasing another thing, which you'll hopefully you might call me back on. It's the youngest English... ISIS um, terrorist in prison um, and it's something I released on Wednesday it's something I'm really passionate and it might change people's minds about letting people rot in prison yeah we definitely do that so the film will be in the cinemas um, yeah. and uh, on available digitally online or, or yeah what? the um, American broadcasters is stars one such as HBO and that so it'll be out on that and I dare say we could find it on anywhere probably on some pay-per-view somewhere at some stage. It's a really big film, and it's something I'm really proud of. Okay, Andrew, well done. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. Let me read some uh, of the huge volume of social media. Uh, Saber says football should stick to its own anti-racism campaigns instead of associating with radical groups like BLM who are pro-violence. I doubt if they're pro-violence, Sabah. Alexandros says, usually the woke brigade dislike anyone that does not follow Western ideology or accept the USA as their master. Funny that. And Elena Stone says there must be marketing companies whose jobs are to think how many issues they can promote to divide and divert people's attention to the many problems we are facing at present. And Nom de Plume is back. There is no black, there is no white. There isn't on the left, but there is on the right. Well, it rhymes, but I don't know what it means. UK politics. Uh, the Lion says the UK government has failed us 
We were misled by false leaders, and there are far too many sheep on the street. And Colin Cornish, a Labour Party which supports a capitalist, bankers, EU, that has overseen the demise of the traditional Labour vote with the EU destroying Labour's political levy funding by the EU for freedom enforcing the stripping of Britain's unionised industrial base with its cheap labour free movement scam. Thanks, that keeps the likes of Branson rich. And he blames Tony Blair for much of it. Dan Fergus says, let's remind ourselves that it's the Europhiliac leadership in the UK that brought all the negative development. And Dale says, politically correct, ultra-liberals who are amazingly apologists for one of the most horrific death cults in recent history. It amazes me how many ultra-woke, feminist, liberal-minded people are so keen to see this woman return to the UK. And Richard Tyler says, no country has the right to call itself a democracy unless 50% of the media is capitalist and 50% is socialist, informing the people properly to let them make up their own mind. Is there any such society? He says, I don't think so. And Christopher Sanchez says, I would not allow Shamima Begum back if I was you. She can no longer be trusted. Even if she was young at the time, no one knows how radicalized she could be by now. I wouldn't even worry about her. But I thought that the filmmaker made a powerful point that this prison isn't going to last forever. Uh, the danger is that these ISIS prisoners, including very seriously dangerous people, people who've actually murdered and chopped people's heads off, end up running loose and trying to get back into this country and other countries illegally in order to carry out further terrorist acts. I thought that might have been actually the strongest point uh, that he uh, made. Uh, should Shamima Begin be allowed back into the UK? Yes, 18%. No, 69%. See, charged on arrival, 13%. So, the lines are open. We're taking your calls till 9 o'clock. Malcolm in Edinburgh is up first. Malcolm, welcome. Hi, George. Thanks for taking my call. Welcome, just sir. Like Go to ahead. Say just like to say your set's looking fantastic and GB News need to take a leaf out of your book and uh, your audio. You're doing great. They should have hired us. They should have hired us, Malcolm. They should have done for consulting. My point, George, uh, very quickly, is um, about taking the knee and Black Lives Matter. I think everyone's in unison about Black Lives Matter with that statement, absolutely 100%. And football fans have, have, have been supporting anti-racism causes for a long, long time. Um, how the FA, FA can turn around and criticise them. You see, when they started taking the knee and the, the stadiums were empty, there was no booing to be had. So when the pushback started is when the, the fans got back into the stadiums. Now, the, the Black Lives Matter organisation was synonymous with that gesture. 
That's an organization that fans have seen defacing uh, Churchill statues. They've seen our rioting in the streets and our police officers taking the knee to them. It's now been established that the founders of the organization, they're fraudsters and they're involved in shootouts in London and gang warfare. The fans do not like that organization. They're not being racist by booing. And for them all of a sudden to turn around and saying it's got nothing to do with the, the organization, it's all to do with Black Lives Matter. Everyone agrees Black Lives Matter. 90% of football fans do not like the organization BLM. And that is just disgraceful for, for politicians and for the FA to turn around and criticize for the, 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 the money-paying fans to make their voice heard. What, what about our voice? let alone the millionaire footballers. Well, the, the Labour deputy leader, Angela Rayner, explicitly said that those who feel like you are racists. Well, she's out of touch, and, 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 and she, she, she's part of the Labour movement that is out of touch. Labour, how many votes? Did, and I'm so pleased that you are actually going to get them de-seated de de in their next by-election. Labour is so out of touch. For her to say that, if she would sit down in a football pub and speak to 10 football fans, you'd find 10 non-racists and you'd find 90% that don't like the organization Black Lives Matter. We don't like Churchill being defaced. We don't like our police taking the knee to this organization. They, they should have rebranded it and said, stand up against racism, and you'd have had the fans cheering to a man. Well, they, I hope so. Uh, not not entirely to a man, Malcolm, and there will be some people who claim it's because they don't like the organization. Uh, who, you know, a few seasons ago might have been throwing bananas at black uh, footballers. There is racism in society and there is racism amongst football crowds. We've seen it. We've seen anti-Semitism amongst Chelsea supporters. Uh, we've seen anti-black racism uh, at some clubs. Uh, they've been punished for it. Their clubs have been horrified by it and so on. So. Uh, I generally agree with you, but we mustn't paint uh, Britain as a society where racism doesn't exist. It's not as bad as some other countries. If you think Britain's racist, you've never lived in France. Uh, but racism is a thing. Oh, I would agree with you, George. But then I would ask you, compared to the 80s, the 70s, 80s, 90s and the thousands, do, do you think it's got better? I think it's got I a do. lot better. I, I think it's a lot better, yeah. yeah. No, I yeah, absolutely, absolutely do think it's a lot better. But it hasn't George, gone away. It, no, it's not gone away, but it has got better. And, it, you know, and, and, and I think the UK It's quite bizarre, Malcolm. I mean, we're, we're Scottish. There are not as many, uh, not nearly as many black players in football in Scotland. But you, you can sometimes evidence racism uh, by fans of teams, more than half of whose own players are black. How do you account for that? Uh, sorry, say that again, George. Mr. Yeah, I mean, many of the top English teams, mo more than half of their players are themselves black. And yet supporters of those teams can often be found, perhaps often is not the right word, sometimes be found uh, being racist towards black people in the other team. I think that's a very small minority, though, George. I think, you know, it's, it's been overstated. If you look at the the makeup of the fans and you look at them mixing around, there's all nationalities and all colours. If you support a team, you support a team. And, 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 you know, we've been in this, I've been in this football stadiums when people, you get a few people booing the black fans. They get, they get, they get very quickly told to shut up and wind the necks in. No, I agree with that. Uh, the vast majority uh, of people in Britain, including football fans, 
uh, have mm -hmm. that zero tolerance attitude towards the uh, minority of racists that uh, exist. Kick It Out was quite a successful FA, homegrown, organic attempt to fight racism in football. It seems to me we could do more on that. We don't need to import a rather contentious uh, organization from the United States. Spot on, George. Spot on. Thank you, Malcolm. And very nice to hear from you. Mike is in the Bahamas. Let's hear from him. Go ahead, Mike. Hi, how are you? All good, thanks. By the grace of God, what would you like to say? Well, I'm obviously American, and I'm also British, but um, I'm calling up as an American. Uh, I don't see the problem with taking the knee. America is all about free speech, and that's not even disrespectful. If they had left, the, if the players left the field during the playing of the national anthem, or didn't show up till after the national anthem, I think that would be disrespectful. So I think they're making a mountain out of a molehill. Is that what Colin uh, did? He never worked again in football, did he? After he took the knee. No, he got, he got Was that during the national anthem? He took the knee during the national anthem, yes. And you would, and you would characterize that like as disrespectful? It. I would not. It's no. not disrespectful. His, uh, Taking was, the knee I mean, is still no. showing respect. Mm. I would say if he left the field during the national anthem or made sure he didn't get on the field till after, that would be disrespectful. But I don't that see seems the to problem me a fair point. of There's him a lot doing of people that. Uh, who uh, purport uh, on other issues to be uh, wholly in favor of free speech, but I'm not so keen if a footballer freely speaks or acts in a way that they don't like. Well, I think then, because there's sort of the commercial aspect to it, um, the sponsors are probably worried, and that might be behind it. Okay, many thanks, uh, Mike, in the Bahamas. Let's talk to Ted in Bradwell in Essex on the Shamima Begum story. Ted, welcome. Hello, George. Wonderful to speak with you again. Thank you. <clears throat> uh, just in passing, I will say, we, <laughs> I know you don't use your show as a platform for your for your political campaigning, but no. I did happen to see some lovely pictures coming from uh, that other side of the country over there. It and, has been uh, a wonderful campaign, yeah. Yeah, and there were some great pictures. Now, I will say some of your campaign videos have been a little bit shaky, but there's some, <laughs> some wonderful, great to see you marching around some of those council estates. Not many uh, people have ever done that in the last decades, Ted. <laughs> no, I thought you were walking down that road like the, uh, the Magnificent Seven, but uh, in, a, <laughs> in a more peaceful aspect. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. Very kind. Um, now, um, if I had the chance to speak to your um, correspondent earlier, the, the, your guest... The, Andrew, the filmmaker, yeah. Yeah, Andrew Drury. Yeah. Now, I think he was on a different wavelength, but I think uh, the, the glaring question to me is, can the authorities afford to allow Shamema Begum to come into this country and go into a court of law and tell her story? Um, the reason I say that is if we have memories of the war in Syria and that whole area, I mean, what used, what used to call Mesopotamia, ISIS and before the Al-Qaeda, we saw these people who 
Yeah, and a lot of them were, rec were recruited from um, run-down council estates and places in Hackney where I used to live. I, see, I used to see lads that were just local troublemakers, or we're well, not so much troublemakers, like fringe activity for low-level criminals, suddenly becoming Muslim con converts, and then you wouldn't see them again. And what we understand is that they were looking for people who uh, got um, perhaps a, a violent background or were wanted to, uh, wanted to take out their anger against the world and society, authority, to harness that and recruit them as a, well I think both you and I are probably fans of, of the, the, the International Brigade yeah. and in Spain and it, from my point of view it seems like young people who were uh, hoodwinked into thinking they were joining some kind of international Arab legion um, of, of um, freedom fighters that were going to go out there and, and, and do some good in the world or, or to put, put things right and I think I think they were hoodwinked. Now, um, one of your fellow correspondents or journalists on um, RT, Martin Summers, I don't know if you've ever met him. I haven't, no. No, well, he's very, very good on this uh, subject. And I've heard him speak several times about uh, a gentleman in uh, Belgium, I think it was, who was a recruiter for ISIS. And he's the gentleman that recruited Shemima, Shemima Begum in um, uh, into this network and got her expenses, travel expenses paid. A lot of these people come from a very poor background. Where do they suddenly get their travel expenses from? Where do ISIS get their weapons from? Where did they get all those shiny pickup trucks uh, from that they were, you know, they were trooping backwards and forwards across the desert, raising clouds of dust in those wonderful, shiny Japanese pickup trucks? There's big money involved. More people made the money available. The, and if you speak to Martin Summers, journalist, often pops up on, on RT, he would tell you that it was Canadian intelligence that paid Shamima's uh, travelling expenses out to Syria. Well, that's a big claim. I can't uh, back it, uh, of course. I have no idea if that's true or not. Uh, if you say that an RT correspondent has claimed that, uh, well... Uh, that's very interesting. Uh, why so? Why Canada? Well, I think um, if we think about the... I mean, I, you must be aware that um, spying that is done on us by U.S. intelligence sure. and GCHQ spies on the... That's how they get around the law, isn't it? They, they, um, it's not legal, I don't think, for GCHQ to, to spy or, or for the U.S., uh, to, to, to enact this surveillance on their own citizens. So they use GH, GHCQ, does the work in the United States. That's the way I understand the way the system works. And yeah, I'm not sure about that. Uh, but I w what I will say is uh, there, are, there are major question marks as to what ISIS really was, who ISIS really were, how they managed to take over uh, a territory the size of Britain uh, in uh, the western part of Iraq and the northern part and almost reaching Damascus in Syria, where they got the funds, the weapons, the vehicles and so on. These questions uh, are there. They have never yet been satisfactorily 
answered, but they will have to be uh, one day. Uh, I believe there were state actors involved supporting uh, the development of this uh, murder death cult uh, called ISIS. And I think when we learn the answers, we're going to be shocked, but perhaps not surprised. I cannot uh, say that I have ever suspected Canada before, uh, though I do believe there were state actors involved. Last word to you, Ted. Okay. And if I could very, very briefly make a reference to the, 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 uh, uh, something on the um, taking the knee, which nobody has brought up yet. Uh, But very briefly, if you remember, Prime Minister Cameron tried to, he was defeated when he voted for strikes on Syria. People thought it was a great victory. They wanted up front to go to war in Syria. I I was one of them. I spoke in that debate. I I, I commend my speech to the House. Go ahead. Last one. Yeah, and you know these people who, they don't give up that easily, and they found other ways of doing it. Now, on the uh, taking a knee, I've, somebody posted up a wonderful picture uh, going back to the 60s of Martin Luther King and his followers in nice, lovely collar and tie and overcoats, um, trilby hats, uh, taking the knee, kneeling down on one knee in the, in the nicely pressed trousers, be, be having a prayer having a prayer before they went on one of the civil rights marches. And I, 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 know, I know the picture very well. They were blocked uh, by the police from crossing a bridge. I think it was in Atlanta, but I may be wrong. Uh, and it's a very iconic uh, photograph. So you're right, it goes back uh, as long ago as the 1960s. Took the knee originally, and on that instance when it first happened, and there were... Uh, playing the national anthem, the gesture was one of, rather than standing up, puffing out the chest, hand on chest in pride, was to uh, kneel down in humility and submission. And that, I think that was the meaning of the gesture. Yeah, well, uh, I, uh, I, I knee before God myself, and uh, the Reverend Martin Luther King was a very God-fearing man. Ted, uh, thank you very much for that uh, exceptional uh, call. Michael is in Liverpool on the Shamima Begum. Go ahead, Michael. Hi, George. I just wanted to talk about the poll. I just thought they were shocking results, really. Yeah. I think that's where the Yeah, I mean, uh, I don't know about shocking. It certainly did, wasn't surprising to me. Uh, yeah, for, uh, the, for the amount of people saying yes, and I don't understand that. The, uh, I think really, any government, be brought home. Any government that tried to bring her home now would be risking a, a lot of political damage, I think. You're, you're correct, George, but that, that's a lot because of the uh, propaganda that the Tories have put behind this. Well, um, it's not propaganda any, any, that she went and became an ISIS right. bride no, in Syria. But, but it's not propaganda either that she was, she was born here and she's gone and, and committed these crimes. We need to get to the bottom of how 15-year-old girls can be convinced to go out. And, yeah, and, and she and wasn't alone Islamic either. There, there were other 15-year-olds. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. And, and, and to get to the bottom of it is, is by calling them home to be arrested and tried as, as, as terrorists. And it's just crazy because they, they put that out there to say, oh, no, we've got rid of her citizenship, so she won't be back. It's, it's the big tough man. But... 
then rea- in reality that just splits to people that, oh yeah, well, I'll I, get behind I, that. Uh, if I may claim some prescience, I uh, opposed uh, the law. Uh, I was quite lonely in the opposition lobby uh, that allowed the British government to take uh, the citizenship away from uh, British citizens that had been born here. Uh, that seemed to me then uh, a wholly unacceptable idea. I'm not against taking citizenship away from people who were born elsewhere and we gave citizenship to. I could think of uh, high-profile uh, terrorists that had ended up with British citizenship but hadn't originally been British citizens. But in the case of Begum, she was born here, so she was born a British citizen. And it seems to me that taking away the citizenship of someone who was born here is to give a government, a here today, gone tomorrow government, far too much power. Last word to you, Michael. It's, it's the fact that it needs to be a trial to get to the bottom of, the, of these facts, you know, whether she was trafficked there and, you know, whether it was much you know, coercion and things like that. How, how it comes about, that can only be done in a trial, but they're, they're not interested in that. That's why they will reject the citizenship, because they, they, want, they want the spectacle to be that, for people to go be, get behind them for that. And then the other half of people going, oh, no, she should be brought back to go on a talk show. Like, no, she, she, she's, what she's done should be brought back to in trials so we can get to the bottom of exactly what's happened. Powerful call, Michael, in Liverpool. Thank you. Julian is in London. Let's hear from him. Julian, welcome. Hi, George. Happy Father's Day. All Thank your you. Lucky to have a dad Thank like you. you. I got, got a lot of cards, Julian. Oh, not lovely. Well, I got my first bunch of flowers and I've got my four-month-old boy here and he's making me feel very special. How wonderful. Now you're a father. Thank That's you. wonderful yeah, news. Praise be to God. Uh, a friend and I had the misfortune of being mistaken for a Shamima Begum-type uh, jihadist outfit because we were uh, teaching refugees boxing in Lebanon. And we were detained for a couple of days and, you know, nothing was found and we were let go. But let's say we had been up to no good in Lebanon. Wouldn't we have had to face trial out there? And it isn't bringing Shamima Begum back here undermining... Syria, as if Syria yeah, yeah, but of course that isn't even an option because we are effectively at war with Syria. Uh, we are not fighting Syria for the moment, but we were bombing Syria not that long ago. And whatever yeah. you think of any country's government, I'm never going to support our country bombing them. Uh, I think every country has the right to overthrow its government. Uh, including Syria, but they've not got the right to ask me uh, to support my country bombing theirs in order to bring that about. Absolutely. Well, this country also supported people like Shamima Begum going... Well, that's a very good point, a very powerful point, Julian. Actually, objectively, we were on the side of Shamima Begum. We were dropping bombs as the Air Force for the Shamima Begums. And that's a point that nobody in Britain really wants to hear. 
Julian, thanks for the call. Happy Father's Day to you. Hey, you. Do you want to know more of what's happening in the world right now? Of course you do. But getting to the heart of the story, well, that's going to take some hard work. That's why here at the Mother of All Talk Shows, we've created that program just for you. Hosted by one of the world's most sagacious minds. Get a perspective, an education on stories from all around the world, dissected and discussed with you. Join our debate, vote in our polls on Twitter, tweet a question to George, or call in now to give us your perspective on the stories the rest of the world simply isn't talking about. Join the College of Knowledge, where there are no tuition fees. Hosted by one of the world's greatest orators, the mother of all talk shows, with George Galloway. Let's make sense of the world together. I, I need to uh, leave time for our very own irrepressible superstar, looking increasingly like Cristiano Ronaldo, Patrick Christie's. Patrick, welcome back uh, to the show. Let me ask you, I know I asked you last week, but I talked about it earlier tonight, and I want your take on it. Mm. Why is GB News still, one week on, a technical Mm. disaster area? How do you spend millions of pounds to launch a TV station that doesn't properly work? Well, what they did was hire a lot of people in the production side of things who are radio producers and very successful radio producers have produced very big shows on on, on very high profile stations. But there is a difference between television and radio. Uh, A lot of the time that difference is another zero in your paycheck. But unfortunately, sometimes the difference is knowing what does it on TV and doesn't in a very technical sense. Uh, And this is an issue they've also employed, but which is all power to them. Some people who have not had a huge amount of experience actually as a television presenter. Now, the likes of McCoy, the likes of Brazier, who previously I had you know, no deep affinity for, don't get me wrong, I thought they were absolutely fine, are now showing exactly how good they are as television presenters. Because, not to be fair with Simon McCoy, because Alex Phillips is good alongside him, but in terms of Brazier and others, the people they've got alongside them, the presenters, the front of house, they're not a lot of uh, established names in the television industry. So when you introduce people who've not presented TV before, what you absolutely don't need alongside it is people who've never produced TV before. And when you bring those two things together, it can become a little bit difficult and it can become a little bit embarrassing. What I will say, and this is important, is the audience is still there. And they, I think, possibly have another couple of weeks in the bank. Yeah, I agree. Uh, And I still uh, believe that it will in the end succeed because the audience is there. Uh, But what do you make of the attempts to strangle it at birth by the uh, advertising uh, industry and by some very big landmark companies who ostentatiously withdrew their advertising uh, on grounds of uh, uh, stopping hate when they could not possibly adumbrate a single example in which the station has been guilty of spreading hate. Yeah, and this is, this is the point, isn't it? That actually, there's, well, there's a lot to unpack here. Firstly, there's the deep irony of people who have decided already they're going to be deeply offended by something, watches hours unstopped of something to, to find what it is they're offended by. Then they're lobbying the, the, the advertisers. Now, I think a big concern here, a big concern, is that it takes, apparently, it takes maybe one or two people on Twitter 
to get in touch with IKEA, a company who, if people check this out, was found, founded by a bloke who wasn't a particularly nice chap. He, he, he was a Nazi collaborator. Thank you very much, George, for saying something I assumed that I maybe couldn't. But it is true, so why didn't I? But anyway, uh, yeah, so that, right? Also, companies like Copperberg. Now, I, I like a Copperberg as much as the next man, which I imagine is not... What is that? Is that alcohol? It's a Copperberg. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a weak cider, George. So I don't imagine you've ever tried it. Uh, no. But, uh, you know, how many, how many, look, how many people are alcoholics and stuff like that? How many people have been done for drink drugs? The idea that an alcohol-infused company is a moral bastion of goodness in the world is a total <laughs> nonsense, right? So there's that. Uh, so, you know, but there's two things there. First and foremost, your companies aren't great to start with, so stop it. Secondly, it's only been a couple of people on Twitter who've had a pop at you. And if that's all it takes to get something cancelled, then that's a concern. Uh, look, I think it's a nonsense. I hope the tide is turning. And I thought Andrew Neil was right, and I think he has to do this, by the way, I think he was right to say, all right then, when it's a success, when, not if, when it's a success, don't come crawling back. And you know what? I imagine they'll come crawling back rather sharpish. Yeah, I mean, IKEA faced with a boycott of its own because yeah. of its boycott, uh, quickly took fright and said, well, you know, we, we, may, we may look at this again. I, I myself am now boycotting IKEA. Yeah. I should have always boycotted it because of its yeah. uh, antecedents. Uh, but uh, I'll never go back there and I'll never assemble another flat pack well, or eat another Swedish meatball again. Well, even if, even if you didn't care that the guy who founded IKEA was a Nazi, even if you didn't care that sometimes there might have been a little bit of horse in your meatball, we should definitely care about the fact that they make us assemble our own furniture. And that alone is enough to boycott IKEA. And it's, I think it's brought it to a head. If there's one good thing to come out of GB News, George, it's the fact that we're now, we're now seeing the light. Just go to John Lewis, you know? Exactly. Now, uh, what about uh, the political scene? What's happening there, Patrick? But I mean this genuinely. I have no idea what's happening uh, because my <laughs> nose is right at the grindstone for reasons that you know about. Uh, and I see uh, only the local picture, not the big one. So educate me. What happened this week in British politics? Well, there was a couple of well, a couple of big things. Firstly, there was the, the, the election results in Chesham and Amersham, previously a Tory seat with a 16,000, to be precise, 223 majority. Uh, formerly by the Tory MP uh, Cheryl Gillan, who unfortunately died from cancer in April. Now, that result was overturned and overturned properly by the Liberal Democrat, Sarah Green, who did an absolute number on them. Now, it's interesting this, really, because... That's obviously, it's a southern seat, right? So we talk about the red wall, don't we, with the Tories. There's a big focus on the red wall with the Conservative Party and what they need to do, like, you know, bring a business hub to Hartlepool and you'll keep, you'll keep the northerners happy. Well, actually, this should have been a safe seat. And the reason why the Tory majority got overturned was because local opposition to HS2, which is going to rip through that area. Uh, also, what's going to happen is planning reforms, essentially build more on the green belts, of which this is. It's the urban sprawl of London in that area. Now, both of those things, you could argue, aren't particularly, or traditionally, not particularly Conservative Party policies. Now, the Conservative Party was willing to let those go, and they got served the receipts in a very 
big way. And I think this is interesting. The other thing that you will not hear, which is a massive fact, and you will not hear this on any BBC report, is the fact that the Lib Dems have been what I would call relatively sound on lockdown, i.e. they don't really want it on account of our civil... They've been remarkably Liberal Democrat about the whole lockdown thing in a way that you would have thought the Conservatives wouldn't have been. And so this is potent kind of trifecta of disaster for the Tories that has led to it. Now, this is the issue, isn't it? Which is that actually, could the Tories see this happening in the long run? The argument to that would be that actually the main opposition should be the Labour Party. And in this by-election, the Labour Party secured a grand total, George, of 622 votes. They have more members in that constituency than they got votes, which means that some actual Labour members either decided to vote for someone else or not vote at all, which is pretty bad. The other big thing that's happened politically this week, George, I would argue, is, well, there's been quite a lot, to be fair, but one of them is that John Burko has defected to the Tory party. Now, I was surprised to hear that as breaking news because I assumed he'd done that a while ago. But no, it turns out he's done it now. The minute silence for John Burko's uh, uh, departure from the Conservative Party, the morning of the loss of Burko, was, as you can imagine, interrupted by cheering. And I'm not sure that his defection to Keir Starmer's Labour Party, yeah. Yeah, this, given this his role in seeking to cheat the British people out of the Brexit for which they yeah. voted is necessarily going to help Keir Starmer rebuild that red wall. It's the thing, isn't it? It's, it's the fact that he's defected to this version of the Labour Party as well. Keir Starmer's version, which basically means nothing. I know nothing about this Labour Party. The only thing I know about it is the fact they've still got the same logo they've had for the last 10 years. That's the only thing I know about Keir so if you're going to defect to a Labour Party, like this is the worst one you could possibly have a bang at. And maybe, he's yeah, maybe he's got some political ambitions. Maybe, maybe uh, Labour would be 20 points ahead if John Burkow was its leader. What I would say is I think actually there's something desperately sad about this whole thing, which is that the convention is that the leader of the House of Commons, the Speaker of the House of Commons, normally goes into the Lords, right? And... I, I, there is an argument for the fact that you should have allowed that to happen because that is convention. The argument on the other side, which is the argument that ultimately won the day, is that John Burko, as Speaker, broke so many conventions. He abused, no yeah, need, he abused no, the which position. He did, which he did do, right? So uh, it's whether or not two broken conventions make a right, you know? So, but, you know, I wouldn't have honoured him. So there's that issue. Now, uh, I think this is, this is a man scorned, isn't it? This is a man scorned. Now, he... Likes to be in the public eye. He clearly did. He, that came across. And he wasn't. And now he is again for a day or two. But I'm, I agree with you. I don't think this does the Labour Party any favours. If the Labour Party wants to win the Red Bull wall back, which it literally needs to do if it was, it's going to win a general election, John Burko's not your man, right? It doesn't take enough focus groups that Keir Starmer's doing to tell you what roughly, very roughly, what you need to do to bring the Red Wall back. Don't take the knee at least pretend to like the Queen and then deliver Brexit. Now, I'm not sure John Burko is on the right side of any of that stuff. And so I don't think Burko, Burko to Labour is not a big win for Starmer, is it? Incidentally, I read, I don't know if it's true, that the Liberal Democrats supported HS2 and yet are the beneficiaries of a huge backlash on HS2. Is that right? It's interesting, yeah, because because this is and this is this is why politics is nuts, isn't it? Because actually, crucially, the Lib Dems aren't the one delivering HS2, are they? So they can get away with it. Now, I happen to have driven through uh, Chesham and indeed Amersham uh, recently, very recently, and there's a big bypass that you go on a dual carriageway, and then you turn right at the roundabout, and you're in you're in Amersham, and there's a road sign there that says 
get this, expect delays until 2028, <laughs> right? which I think is more than enough to ask of any road user. And that reason is because they're building <laughs> HS2. There's also massive issues with property development in those areas. A lot of people bought a house enough outside London where you could literally afford to buy a house. And now they've been confronted by the fact that the park you looked out on has been approved for planning permission and that's going to be a thousand pounds. Now people get annoyed about that. Now they actually, I don't want, but they can't have done because the Lib Dems won. They can't have looked into what the Liberal Democrats' actual policies on both of those things were. What served the Lib Dems well is the fact that they actually weren't the party delivering. Yeah. That happened and that's why we are where we are. Uh, finally, have you recovered from Scotland's nil-nil yeah. victory at Wembley the other night. I wondered, you somebody, I wondered how long, your producer spoke to me earlier, he went, yeah, have you recovered from it? And I thought, you know what? You're treating it as a win. I tell you what I've not recovered from and I don't want to recover from actually. I was banging favourite. People have dug the Scots out for what they did in Hyde Park and the, 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 I'm banging favour a little bit of a, a celebratory behaviour, shall we say. And I thought, look, you know what? The fact is, there's no excuse for England not beating Scotland, and we didn't beat you. And so you have every right to celebrate, George. Uh, yeah, best result must... for independence, though. Best result, just quickly, best result for independence. If we'd have thumped you, Sturgeon would be saying, off we go, and she'd be out there. If you'd have beaten us, the grass would start looking greener on the other side. Yeah. A, good Brit a good British nil-nil, George. Scotland and England can never be separated, even on <laughs> the football park. <laughs> Patrick Christie, thanks very much indeed for joining us on the mother of all talk shows. Now, don't forget, you can download the podcast of this program, a finely edited highlights version of this three-hour epic. From tomorrow, search Moats, M-O-A-T-S, on the app where you get your podcast from. Hit subscribe to never miss an episode or a download. It's been marvellous for me. I hope it was for you. And if it was, come back next week at the same time, the same place. Good night. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.